Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of them to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that city. What do you, Shorazin? What do you, Bethsaida? For if the miracles had been performed entire, that had been performed entire and sight, and which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are... So thankful for the ongoing instruction that you provide us in your word. Thank you not only for the glorious truth of the gospel, but for the implications of the gospel that are plainly explained to us. Lord, I pray this morning as we contemplate what it means for ministry to multiply, for ministry to expand, and we contemplate this as Christians, I also pray, Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of those who perhaps are not Right now, Christians, we're still in their sins and are in, our, in, our, in need of repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, we know that you grant these as sovereign gifts of yours. And so we ask that you would draw men unto salvation. You draw them to Christ. That you would show them the excellencies of Jesus. They would see in him their only Savior, their only hope of salvation pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come in our gospel harmony to a time period of less than six months before Jesus' crucifixion, and we see opposition to Jesus on the rise. From virtually the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we see that many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day demonstrated animosity towards Christ. They critiqued Jesus they attempted to entrap Jesus. They plotted and schemed against Jesus. And as we saw at the end of chapter 8 of John's Gospel last week, 
They even endeavored to put Jesus immediately to death by stoning when they claimed that he had blasphemed by saying that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' activities are becoming more and more widely known, and the religious leaders don't like it one bit. Persecution is on the rise. Opposition is heating up. And we can see that we're traveling towards a climactic moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus. We've already noticed that Jesus carefully managed the circulation of information regarding himself during his few years of earthly ministry. There's on several occasions where we noted where Jesus warns people, including even his own disciples, to not say anything about what had just happened. Remember, we looked at some of these along the way. One in particular where he tells his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And this is right after Peter had made that confession, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, don't say anything about this. And we talked about why would Jesus tell them not to say anything about it. And one of the big conclusions that we came to was that their understanding of the Messiah and his ministry was skewed. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. So for them to proclaim the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, would land them in a wrong place because they didn't rightly understand what Jesus had come to do. So Jesus exercised a careful management over the circulation of information regarding himself. It's obvious that not only the disciples, but many others, that they did not understand Jesus' mission as the Messiah. And so this is something that Jesus would give his followers uh, continuing instruction regarding You see, many were looking for a Messiah that would be their conquering king. There were very few that were expecting the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's not to say that words about Jesus would always be kept restrained. Remember after Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus tells the inner three that are with him who experienced Jesus' transfiguration. He says, don't say anything about this until later. So there would be a time in which they would broadcast what had happened and certainly we who are able to read the bible are still testimony to that very thing jesus said not right now but later you will and we're going to see this even being evidence in the text before us this morning it's it's difficult to place exactly where this event lands in the ministry of jesus it begins at the beginning of a section of luke's material that is not found in the other synoptic gospels matthew and mark we don't find there's a big passage here that luke speaks to that the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, do not speak to. It's a really unique time in Jesus' ministry. It's in between a couple of very major feasts, and it's leading up to Jesus' final crucifixion. We're all, we're gonna, all the gospels are going to converge back together again when we get to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But what we have in between this time is a lot of discussion from Luke about Jesus' ministry in the surrounding area around Jerusalem, sometimes referred to as Perea. Remember, most of Jesus' ministry happened up in Galilee. Now Jesus has moved closer to Jerusalem. And what Luke does is Luke ends up telling a whole lot of information that happens during Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem. And then John has some information during the same time period, but really his is all centered in Jerusalem for the most part. So John's kind of telling us what happens when Jesus pops into town in Jerusalem. And then Luke kind of gives us a lot of information about what Jesus is doing outside of Jerusalem in the outskirts of town. It's here where we come to a very unique time in Jesus's ministry. Everything is building in the narrative towards this final, what we know to be a final Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. It's here in the midst of escalating opposition. Things are getting heated. Things are becoming more and more difficult for ministry. 
It's at this point that Jesus says, okay, it's time for us to expand ministry. I find this so interesting. I find this so interesting. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus had appointed the 12 disciples to go out and he commissioned them on a little short-term mission trip around Galilee. He told them, don't go into Samaria. He said, we're going to keep this localized, but I'd like you to go out throughout Galilee. And he sent them out by twos. And they were to spread word of the coming of the kingdom of God, to perform healings and cast out demons. And they come back and give reports to Jesus. We see kind of what I consider like a first short-term Christian mission trip as they go around and do ministry around Galilee. But now here in the midst of venomous religious leaders who want to put Jesus to death, instead of shrinking away from the coming conflict, Jesus finds it now to be the appropriate time to expand ministry operations. There were other times when public opinion wanted to sweep up Jesus and carry him right into political office. Remember some of these occasions, for example, when Jesus had fed the 5,000? Everybody's like, huh, he's here. Let's just take him in. Let's make this moment. And that's the moment when Jesus mysteriously is absent from the crowds. He sends them away. He sends his disciples away. And he goes up on the mountain by himself and prays. It's interesting that at moments when public opinion was so high about Jesus and they wanted to sweep him into political office, that Jesus holds back the people's zeal. But now that tensions are at an all-time high, and all the religious leaders want Jesus dead, it's at this moment that Jesus says, time to multiply ministry. <laughs> time to get word out about who I am and what I'm doing. The situation gives me pause to wonder how well we read the providences of God. You know, according to human wisdom, it would seem that Jesus had botched this decision. It seems that his political timing is completely off. You know, in today's uh, world, and specifically with even the uh, Republican nomination process going on, and everybody having a word to say about when so-and-so enters into the race and how that affects this, that, and the other, it would seem, if we were looking at this from a purely human perspective, that Jesus' approach to ministry is just odd. <laughs> Completely disadvantageous to what you would think you'd want to be doing. I mean, he sees his political timing is completely wrong. But that seems to be just the point. Yes, it wasn't advantageous for human fleshly goals, but it was in complete harmony with divine purposes. Now, granted, Jesus knew his father's plan intimately. He knew it perfectly. He didn't do anything but what the father told him to do. He didn't say anything other than what the father had told him to say. But it does serve to warn us against making decisions that fail to take into account a heavenly perspective. From a human, earthly perspective, it seems like this would not be the time to expand ministry. <laughs> like, hey, let's keep this thing kind of quiet. Everybody's out to get you. Let's kind of hold down words about you right now. But instead, this is when Jesus says, no, time to spread word about the coming kingdom. I think we can gain a whole lot of help in this regard, even though obviously we are not Jesus. We don't have his insight into things. But we can gain a whole lot of heavenly perspective. And the best way to do that is to grow in our personal relationship with the Lord through a steady diet of His truth. We have to allow the Bible to shape our understanding, to shape the lens by which we view reality and look at everything else. God's Word has to be that lens through which we make decisions. Our decision-making process must not be in accordance with worldly philosophy and worldly ideas, but in accordance with God's purposes, with God's plan with God's will. And the only way that we're going to understand God's will is by understanding God's word and understanding what God has told us about himself and what he's doing in the world around us. That's a very simple statement to say 
God's word has to be the lens through which our decision making is done. Very, very simple statement. And it's one that I think I hope the majority of us would readily agree with. And yet we have to admit that it's far too easy to fall into other models of church growth today. Many a church has allowed worldly advice to play a heavy role in its approach to ministry. When did they expand ministry? When did they contract ministry? Many have adopted a business model and they made decisions solely on the basis of profitability. Some are consumed with the idea of bigger buildings and nicer stuff, thinking if you build it, they will come. Yeah, yeah, you've heard that. Others have built ministry around findings of surveys and modified the church to bring it in line with popular opinion and popular interest and try to grow ministry through these sort of avenues. Others have attempted to grow ministry through toning down the gospel and pushing, pushing other concerns as primary. For example, emphasizing political involvement or family building or humanitarian aid. Some are content to grow the church through entertaining people and making people feel good about themselves. Well, the truth is that some of the matters involved in these church growth models aren't all bad. I mean, certainly there's something quite necessary about making wise financial decisions, wouldn't you agree? Also, having a place to gather for worship of our God is a fine thing. Considering where people are in our congregation is a helpful thought process for pastors. Considering the impact of the gospel on politics, on family, on acts of charity, all important things. Ultimately, the gospel does grant true joy and happiness in the Lord as well. But the problem is obviously allowing any one of these pursuits to drive the cart. These may all be matters of importance in their own sphere, but they must not be allowed to be primary. They are not the means by which ministry, Christian ministry, is expanded. Again, we need to look no further than the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He understood the need for the expansion of Christian ministry. In the text before us, Jesus selects 70, or some translations have here 72. By the way, this is one of the big debates in, in the Gospel of Luke, is whether or not it is 70 or 72. There is manuscript evidence pointing in both directions. There are textual variants both ways. And there's a whole slew of argumentation that goes back and forth uh, again around whether it was 70 or 72 in the original. It's considered, um, it's an interesting number. You know, 72 itself is a multiplication, is a six times multiplication of 12. So you have literally a multiplication of six on Jesus' original uh, sending out of the 12 disciples earlier in his ministry. Here we have 70 or 72. The number is interesting for a few other reasons as well. It's considered to be representative of the whole world. If you read Genesis 10 in the Hebrew, there are exactly 70 names that are listed there as the descendants of Noah after the flood. And so in Jewish conception, the idea here was that those 70 names, and obviously being the descendants of Noah, there is no one else besides Noah and his family, right, and his descendants. So you can literally represent the whole world at that point with those 70 names. So the word 70, in some estimations, became synonymous with a reference to the whole world. Interestingly enough, by the way, those people who advocate a 72 number here, the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually has 72 names. So they make a big deal of that. Like I said, this is an interesting debate goes back and forth. Perhaps uh, it could also point to something else. Remember when Moses is given some advice by his father-in-law, things are kind of getting out of hand. He can't control uh, and make decisions on all the various cases that are going on. And so I think it's Jethro who gives him some advice, right? He says, what should Moses do? 
to select some elders, right, to help him in this uh, massive task of overseeing and providing judgments for the people of Israel. So he selects 70 elders to help in that ministry. So someone said, well, it's interesting that Jesus has 12 apostles. It seems kind of similar to the 12 nations of Israel or the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Here he selects 70 or 72 to be sent out. And that number uh, picks up on that uh, symbolism perhaps as well. Also, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, court, numbered 70. Others point to the fact that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is called the Septuagint because it represented 70 or 72 elder people who went about doing the translation. So you can imagine, if you have ever encountered a number in the Bible, I'm sure there's been a study of numerology done on that number. And sometimes those little studies are more helpful. Other times they're not so much helpful. But regardless of whether you thought that was helpful or not, I think what is presented here is that Jesus is most definitely expanding ministry in a huge way. Certainly he's starting to push forward with ministry plans. This is such a wonderful inclusion that Luke gives us in Luke 10. He's the only one that recounts the sending of the 70 or 72. He's the only one that does that. I think it's really interesting, especially when we know that Luke is the same writer of the book of Acts, which kind of traces the flow of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. The book of Acts kind of ending with with Paul's travels to Rome, which at that point was the center of the empire. Right. So we see that very flow happen in the book of Acts. And here Luke includes this. And I think it's a great reminder to us of this. That Jesus' intention in ministry was never him and the twelve and that's it. Jesus was training twelve men that they would become themselves trainers of others. And there was a much larger group that was surrounded surrounding Jesus, not just the twelve. But we were, here we have, and literally it reads, 70 others. So not even including the twelve here. Here we have others that are sent out by Jesus for ministry. The twelve were given a unique authority by Christ. But Jesus always planned to send more, many more than those 12 into the world to do ministry. As a matter of fact, Jesus grants authority even in the church today by granting pastors and teachers and all the rest for what? The equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The model has never been, I'm going to select a few people and they're going to do the ministry and everyone else is going to be spectators. The model has always been, I'm going to select a few, give them some authority for the purpose that they would train others, that they would equip others to do the work of ministry. Christian ministry has always been within the Lord's plan, an effort that all Christians engage in. So let's learn from Jesus how we should expand ministry efforts in a sermon entitled Expanding Ministry Amidst Escalating Opposition. I want to really highlight that factor here. Don't lose sight of that as we're walking through this. Remember, things are getting more difficult for ministry. And this is the moment when Jesus says it's time to expand. It's time to press out. It's time to make further proclamation into the surrounding countryside. I want us to take to heart five imperatives. They're really, really simple points. Five imperatives which undergird genuine multiplication of Christian ministry. Everybody's talking about growing ministry, expanding ministry. But I think there's five imperatives that Jesus provides us with here in the text that we would do well to listen to and consistently apply. I'll list them quickly right now and we'll look at them individually. Number one, be earnest. Be earnest. Number two, be ready. Be ready. 
Number three, be wise. Be wise. Number four, be confident. Be confident. And number five, be faithful. Be faithful. Be earnest. Be ready. Be wise. Be confident. Be faithful. The first imperative which supports genuine Christian growth, genuine Christian ministry expansion is be earnest. Be earnest. You know where this all starts? I'll tell you where true Christian ministry growth starts. It starts with opening our eyes to the need. Opening our eyes to the need. Or perhaps better said, having our eyes opened to the need. That passive tense indicating that there's a divine thing going on here. That God must open our eyes to see the need. Jesus begins these words of commission to the 70 or 72 He sets the context for their mission. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Also can be translated, while the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. And this isn't the only time that Jesus has made use of this sort of analogy to set the context for Christian ministry. He said it before setting out the 12 in Matthew 9, 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So he says the same words before he sends out the 12. He said in John 4, verse 35, when explaining to the disciples that his food was to do the will of his father. This is right after Jesus had talked with the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, they come back and they're like, have you eaten anything? He's like, well, my food is to do the will of my father who's in heaven. And then he says, he questions, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look unto the fields, for they are white for harvest. What Jesus is saying here is, do you see the real spiritual condition that's all around you? One of the things that's such a damper on growing Christian ministry and evangelistic efforts and discipleship ministry is that we're plagued by earthly obsessed eyes. Our eyes can so often fail to see people's spiritual condition. Jesus is calling his disciples to see people the way he sees them. There's a harvest that's white, that is ready to be reaped. Our eyes must be open to see the need in order for any sort of earnestness to develop in us. If we don't feel and see and perceive a need, then we won't be earnest about filling it. We won't be earnest about doing something about it. I'm sure you've been confronted at some point in your life with pictures and video of malnourished and starving children in some area of the world. Often humanitarian aid organizations make use of these images to cause people to give towards certain initiatives that they're engaged in. They're trying to show and uh, help us observe that basic necessities of life that we often take for granted in some areas of the world they just don't have. And children are starving to death from malnourishment or from lack of food or lack of water or they don't have shelter or clothing. Just basic necessities of life. And the idea of those presentations is to help people see what otherwise remains unseen. How many of you have been to one of these third world countries and have personally seen that sort of situation? There might be a handful of us that have, but probably the vast majority of us have not. And had there not been pictures taken, had there not been video taken, had there not been these sorts of events in which these things are put forward, we might never recognize 
that condition. That thing which otherwise remains unseen we now becomes seen to us. And we are awakened to the real life conditions of those who are in the poorest places on earth. Can I, can I just note that similarly, we need our eyes to be opened to the spiritual condition of people. You see, you don't have any desire, there's no awakened earnestness to do something for people that you don't know anything about. I mean, you, just, you just don't have any connection with that. And so the effort in those kinds of presentations is to connect you with faces, connect you with people, stir your heart, awaken desire to try to help those who are in desperate need. But dare I say that there's a problem among many of us as Christians when we fail to see the spiritual condition of people all around us. We're not awakened to the need. We walk around blinded to their spiritual situation. And oftentimes what's so difficult about this one is you can't just show a couple of pictures and awaken that, can you? These external appearances can betray something completely different than what's going on in the heart. A person can have all the riches in the world and seem to be have everything put together. And meanwhile, they'd be very lost and very separated from God. There are people who outwardly seem to have everything going for them, and yet they're dead in their sins and on their way to a Christless eternity. An eternity without Christ. So pictures aren't going to get us to see man's real need. What's required is for the Lord to open our spiritual understanding to help us to perceive the condition of men's souls. We have to literally take that word soul winner and own it and really understand it. That we're not concerned about mere flesh and blood things and bones, but of the soul of individuals. Certainly we can provide a cup of water to the one who's thirsty and a blanket to the one who's cold. Certainly, certainly. But if that's all that we do, we might have been awakened to their physical need. We haven't yet been awakened to their spiritual need. That's why I really encourage if you are involved in giving to any sort of humanitarian aid organizations, please do it with Christian organizations. They'll not only give the cup of water, will not only give the medical shops or whatever, but they'll bring the gospel but otherwise, just provide them with a couple of more years here on earth, but to not present them with eternal life is, is a real tragedy. We will not understand the impetus for genuine ministry expansion until we recognize the value of the soul. We must see the world as Christ does if we're going to do ministry in His name. Our hands and eyes are priceless to us, aren't they? I came up to Christian and said, Christian... Yeah, I'll give you a thousand bucks for your eyes. I'm sure he would turn that down real quick. If I offer him a million dollars, I'm sure he'd probably turn that down real quick, right? Oh, now he's starting to wonder. Uh, okay. Maybe Ari says, no, no, Christian, keep your eyes. Okay. So, I mean, you wouldn't be able to look at your beautiful wife anymore, Christian. So you better be careful about how you answer that one. Anyway, um, so, so recognize here, we, we, our, our eyes and our, our hands are, are priceless to us. And meanwhile, Jesus says, in reference to the relative value of the soul, it's better to pluck out your eye and cast it from you if it means otherwise you're going to hell. It's better to have your hands cut off if they cause you to stumble and go to hell. It's all a matter of relative value. Eyes and hands are valuable so far as they go, but they're not as valuable as the soul. Jesus said it again in Mark 8, 36 and 37. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Right? 
Who cares if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? So certainly we who have been redeemed, who have had our souls bought by the blood of Christ, we must value the thing that is the most valuable about people, and that is their souls. We have to cultivate a godly compassion. Jesus involved himself in deeds of mercy, surely, because we're told several times Jesus was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. He did this when he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. He did this on other occasions as well, when he healed people and he took care of physical needs. But recognize all of this was with the endeavor to not just provide a temporary physical need, but to bear witness to the reality of who Jesus actually was and call them, invite them to come to him as their Savior and as their Lord. If this compassion is truly godly, it will bring something beyond the provision of food, water, and shelter, which are temporary helps. It will bring the offer of the good news that sinful men can be reconciled to their Creator through Jesus Christ. But for this to be prominent in our minds, we'll have to see things differently than this world does. We must not gauge people's needs on the basis of external appearances, but in accordance with the condition of their souls. We have to maintain a sense of urgency, so our eyes need to be opened. In order for this earnestness to really take place, we have to have our eyes open, and then there has to be this sense of urgency about us. That's why I think it's so interesting about the imagery that Jesus makes use of here. When it's harvest time, guys, it's time for decisive action. What Jesus explained in Mark 4, verse 29, about that the kingdom of God is like the seed which is planted and grows secretly, that the man even goes to sleep at night, and the, and the crops just grow. Um, and he's talking about that. He finished off that passage in Mark 4:29, saying, But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Sometimes we're separated from this because not many of us have strictly agrarian occupations. Not many of us are growing all of our own food and very familiar with agrarian practice, but people of Jesus' day would have been. And they understood this, that when the crop is ready to be harvested, do you have time to dilly-dally? No. You have to get out there and get it, right? It's time to go and take action. To dilly-dally with the crop that's ready to be harvested might mean the loss of a good harvest. It might have meant that all the previous work that was done for it, it could rot. It could be destroyed by pests and pestilence. It could, all kinds of things could happen to a good harvest. And if the harvest is truly before us, then we must act in earnest. We must be urgent about this matter. Also note that Jesus calls his servants to beseech, otherwise translated pray earnestly by the NAS, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest so that he might thrust out workers into his harvest. I'll tell you this, a really good indication of the way in which you have cultivated godly compassion and recognize that your eyes have been opened and you recognize the value of the soul is that you will be one who longs to see those who are still in darkness, who are still, as, as Ephesians says, under the sway of the prince of the power of the air of the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You will have a longing to see them saved. You will have a longing and you will be moved as a result to prayer. Those who have their eyes opened will earnestly engage in prayer. Yes, you will work and you will know the vast scope of that work. You will recognize that the harvest is plentiful and you'll also recognize that the workers are relatively few. 
And then you'll do what Jesus is calling us to do here. You'll cry out to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Think about it this way. If you were employed by a farmer to go out and harvest literal crops and you got out there, maybe you and somebody else who've been employed to do it, and you recognize really fast that this harvest is huge and you're just a couple of workers, pretty soon what are you going to do? If you care anything about the harvest and you care anything about the owner of the harvest, what are you going to do? You're going to ask the owner, send out more people. Let's bring them in from the highways and byways. Let's pay them whatever it takes because there's a harvest to be grabbed. There's going to be an earnestness about this. So recognize this. If you see the condition of men's souls, if you see the vast harvest before us, if you've been granted this sort of earnestness, then it will translate into prayer. You will pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, laborers into his harvest. The level of your desperation will influence your activity. This is why those committed to evangelism are most earnest about praying for it and highlighting the need for others to be involved as well. I think this is the very reason why we have missionaries who come back from the mission field to raise awareness. Because oftentimes they really understand this. And sometimes we've been lulled to a spiritual slumber. It's sad. But what we need is to be awakened to the need that is all around us. There is a harvest that needs to be harvested. And certainly that will show itself in our activity and our action to proclaim the gospel. But it will also show itself most definitely in deep prayerfulness that the Lord of the harvest will send out more laborers into his harvest. J.C. Ryle exhorted, prayer is one of the best and most powerful means of helping forward the cause of Christ in the world. It is a means within the reach of all who have the spirit of adoption. Not all believers have money to give to missions. Very few have great intellectual gifts or extensive influence among men. But all believers can pray for the success of the gospel. And they ought to pray for it daily. How often do we neglect the gift of prayer? And the responsibility that we have to be earnest in prayer for the salvation of the lost and for the pushing forward of more workers into this harvest. This is also, I think, how we can get make sense of Jesus's instruction, which otherwise seems quite strange at the surface. He says here, and greet no one along the way and greet no one along the way. End of verse four. Greet no one on the way. The way. At first glance, it seems quite unkind, doesn't it? (laughs) But there's a couple of things I think need to be kept in mind here. First of all, it's quite possible that the greeting that's being pictured here that's supposed to be avoided was one that was an extensive one, not just a quick hello, not just a wave as you pass by someone, not just a smile as you went along. But sometimes uh, greetings of that culture were quite long winded and could involve a whole lot of hospitality being extended and received. Edersheim comments, the instruction was suitable to a temporary and rapid mission, which might have been sadly interrupted by making or renewing acquaintances. Jesus says you have a mission to be about. It's not a time for just lollygagging along the way. Another thing I just want to mention is this, is that Jesus is providing some very specific instruction for a specific short-term mission trip. And with that in mind, the demands of the moment must be taken into consideration. And I would also 
argue that we should not absolutize every instruction that Jesus is giving here. And I'll talk more about this in a, in a few moments. We see that Paul offers greetings in his letters, for example. <laughs> Jesus is here to, to not greet anyone along the way. It doesn't mean that we never offer greetings to anyone. Paul himself does so. Romans 1. Listen to, he had some really long-winded greetings sometimes. Listen to Romans 1, verse 7. All very theologically accurate and helpful, but still long. Romans 1, 7. To all who are beloved of God of, in Rome, call the saints... Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we recognize that even here, the 72, after they've greeted no one along the way, the first thing they're supposed to do when they come into a house is do what? (laughs) Pronounce a greeting or a blessing here. Peace be on this house. Just a cautionary note to make here in applying specific instructions in timeless ways. We have to be very, very careful about how we make that application. We have to consider what is timeless in the command. For example, greet one another with a holy kiss. We have to be careful with that instruction in our culture today, don't we? There are appropriate manners in which that can be demonstrated, and it really does communicate what was meant to be communicated. But there are other times in which the timeless principle is greet one another in a loving way. So maybe a handshake or a hug is appropriate in a different cultural setting. Similarly here, I think we have to take this into account. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. But regardless, the point to be taken home is that the mission was so important that it required the purposeful neglect of other distractions. And this is the question I wanted to ask us. Are our lives marked with that sort of urgency? Do we feel incredible pressure? What is it that we feel incredible pressure to complete? What is it that takes up urgency in our lives? What What are the things that will, at certain moments, will cause us to block out all other things that we might accomplish this thing? I know that we all come to those moments in, in our daily lives. But my question is this. How often are the urgent things that crowd into our days spiritually motivated? How often is it that the urgent thing is a spiritual priority and so thus the earthly things become neglected? Or, let me ask you this way, how many times does the earthly consideration or concern become the urgent thing so spiritual things are neglected so we might rail against it how dare him not greet these people along the way but there is a spiritual purpose in mind he doesn't want them to be distracted from their mission there's a holy urgency that ought to mark our interactions with others let me ask you this when you do have opportunities to share the gospel with someone do they sense that you are earnest about their salvation do they sense that there is a a sense of urgency about your proclamation? Or do you present it as like very like, well, you know, take it or leave it, that's kind of how it is. <laughs> is there a sense of urgency about us? Are we earnest? Do we come across as disinterested, passionless people? Or is there a holy fervency about our gospel presentation? Our calling of others to repent and believe. So important. I, I think this... This element is so very, very important. If, if this is not present, if earnestness is not present, then the rest of this kind of becomes a moot point. And that's why we spent so much time on it. Second imperative, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for what? Well, a couple things. Be ready for vulnerability. That's the first thing I want to say. Be ready for vulnerability. Typically, we don't like that's the sound of that word. We don't like to be ever vulnerable to anything. 
But meanwhile, Jesus says, go. He gives the command, go. Sounds just like Jesus' command in the Great Commission, right? Go. So go. And then he says, behold, I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Right up front, Jesus says, here's the scenario. Here's the context. Okay, it's a harvest. I have laborers and me sent out there. And by the way, actually, also pictured here, you're a bunch of lambs and you're going into the midst of wolves. Real encouraging thought, isn't it? As they're being sent out into the world from Jesus. You're a bunch of lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus warms us up front that this mission is not an easy one. Jesus sends us out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So we have to be ready to embrace vulnerability. And this is because God is making a marvelous display of his glory through the suffering of his laborers. This is so incredible. Is that Jesus is actually making use of the suffering of his servants in proclaiming the glorious truth of the gospel. You see, we're commissioned to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Colossians 1.24 says. Now, we, as we've commented before, and John Piper does an excellent explanation on this little verse we commented before about this. It's not in any way, shape, or form that we actually contribute to the efficacy, the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's not as if his suffering wasn't enough. It was plenty and then some. It was sufficient to save all those whom he died for. But Paul's point here is to say that we as Christ's ambassadors are to serve as a visible bodily manifestation of Christ's work before a watching world. So God is purposefully sending us out as lambs among wolves, to display His greatness, to display His power. Remember, Jesus is described as what? The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So we, in following Jesus, are also lambs and sheep. And we are to manifest the glory of God in our weakness. Isn't that exactly what 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says? We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. <laughs> this, whole, this whole work that we're engaged in is purposely set up that we be vulnerable, that we be weak. That, that way everyone would recognize that it's not our strength that is doing this, but God's. It's God's power working in and through us that is bringing this to pass. And that image shouldn't encourage us to become fearful, but instead encourage us to become dependent. Yes, we're lambs, myths, wolves. That sounds like a really scary prospect. But we remember that we have a great shepherd who watches over us and is using us in his service. John 16:33, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And again, there in the Great Commission, go, right? Making disciples, baptizing, you know, teaching, all that rest. And then he says, after all that, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, we're in the midst of wolves. Yes, we're a bunch of sheep. But let that drive us to dependence upon our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us always, even to the end of the age. So be ready for vulnerability. One other thing I want to just encourage you to be ready for, be ready for rejection. Be ready for rejection. I always wondered how those of you who are salespeople in here, how many no's do you get before you get a yes? <laughs> a bunch, right? You got you to really get ready for rejection. Just get ready for it. If you're prepared for it, you'll respond to it a whole lot differently than you otherwise would. And not only be ready for rejection, but be ready for persecution. 
And instead of letting it cause you to retreat, let it drive you forward. Don't be deterred by rejection, nor by persecution. Jesus says here, if a house should should respond favorably to you, your your, uh, peace will rest on it. But should it not, your peace will return to you. He says, if a city should not receive you, go out into the streets and explain to them that you're shaking the dust from your feet. It's a sign of judgment upon the city. And then tell them, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. And then travel on to the next place. Peter tells Christians in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised about it, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. You see, those who have been granted the blessing of sharing and partnering in Christ's sufferings will also have the blessing of sharing in Christ's resurrection. In his glory. Rejoice in this, Peter says. And Jesus explains at the end of these instructions, the one listening to you listens to me. And the one rejecting you rejects me and rejects the one who sent me. So note this. Part of our problem sometimes is that we take this all too personally. (laughs) Understand that when they reject us for the message of Christ, they're actually rejecting Christ. And they're rejecting the one who sent Christ, God the Father. And while it is usually a big mistake to reject a king's messenger because it has implications on your relationship with the king, it has the highest implications and problems should you reject the ambassadors of the king who is the sovereign lord of the entire universe. By the way, just because some people reject the gospel doesn't mean that everyone does. Don't allow one person's rejection to stop you from sharing the gospel with someone else. I love, I love how, and by the way, for us, us reformed people, we understand the sovereignty of God and salvation, right? It is an understanding of God's, um, choice from all eternity to save a people for his own glory that fuels ministry. It was knowledge of God's election that fueled Paul's ministry. He said this in 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What fueled Paul in the midst of persecutions and trials and difficulties? What fueled him forward is knowing that God was saving a people for his own possession. So his goal and hope was that he would announce this glorious news to as many people as possible. That God would utilize it to grant salvation to those whom he had chosen. The third imperative fueling expansion of Christian ministry is to be wise, to be wise. And just a couple of things to mention here. First of all, take take full advantage of companionship. Jesus here sends out 72, but he sends them out two by two, two by two. There could be a couple of reasons for that. One is a practical one, right? There's a tremendous amount of support that can be provided by having a companion in ministry. Would you not agree? Something wonderful about doing ministry in community Ecclesiastes 4, very famous verse, almost always read it. Weddings, beautiful little, little passage. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls. It doesn't have another one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lay down together, they will keep warm. How will one be warm alone? If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You see, there's mutual comfort and help that can be provided to one another. 
So let's encourage one another. Let's do ministry together. Let's lock arms with one another and engage in this together. Something to think about is this. Whenever you're doing some sort of ministry, I remember uh, one of my pastoral ministry classes, they said, whenever you're doing some sort of ministry as a pastor, and this extends to anyone, whenever you're doing ministry and you could do it by yourself, bring someone else with you anyway. (laughs) Because if nothing else, you're giving them training on the job. Let them see this, how this happens. We should always be encouraging one another in these ways. It's amazing the accountability that is fostered that way. And the example is found throughout the book of Acts, isn't it? Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and John Mark for a while, then Barnabas and John Mark. They're all, Timothy gets added to the mix, Luke gets added to the mix. I mean, they're traveling around together, they're doing ministry together, they're encouraging one another, they're supporting each other. Let's take advantage of that. Let's make use of the friendships we can have in the body of Christ and utilize them for specific spiritual goals and ends. The second reason that I think could be given why send two is a legal one. Two witnesses were confirming testimony. It become a long-established practice that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Deuteronomy 19.15 describes that. And that principle is picked up in several New Testament texts. Matthew 18.16 in the cases of church discipline. Second uh, Corinthians 13.1. 1 Timothy 5.19. Hebrews 10.28. On and on the examples go. But it gives attested binding testimony when two bear witness to the same truth. So take full advantage of companionship. Other thing that would, I think can give us instruction in being wise is to consider the specifics of the mission that we're engaged in, the particular ministry expansion that we're engaged in. Jesus gave these 70 or 72 some very interesting and unique instructions. He told them, carry not a money belt, carry not a bag, carry not shoes. Jesus forbids them from taking money, provisions, and extra traveling gear. So these sent ones are not to make any preparations for this ministry. They're told to wholly depend upon the provision that's given to them by those who warmly receive them into their homes. Now, we're not told the reason why Jesus gives these specific commands to these on this occasion. We're not told why, specifically. We might guess, combined with the exhortation to not greet anyone along the way, that it had something to do with the timeliness of the task. In other words, he doesn't want them going home and making purpose. Just go. It's time to go. Go now. I don't want you going around and making preparations. Just go. He tells them also not to go house to house, but to stay in one home until it was time to move on. Again, that might accord with the idea that I don't want you to just stay in one community either. I want this to be an itinerant ministry. You'll go somewhere, you'll stay in a home, and at some point you will leave. And when you leave, you will not only leave that house to go to another house, you'll go to another community. You'll go to another place. So all this might be some indication that Jesus knows his time is coming. He wants news out quick, fast. It's not a time to make huge preparations. I just want you to go and your needs are going to be provided for. There have been some who've explained this command and have used this command to be obligatory and and law on all believers when they're engaging in ministry. And sometimes you've maybe read some books that have been written by missionaries who've engaged in this sort of practice where we will make no preparations. I'll just go to a place and God's going to provide for all of my needs. You know, we won't have any milk in the morning. We'll pray and milk will be delivered, you know, when we need it. This, this kind of philosophy that some have genuinely engaged in. Some have even borne witness that God has actually provided for their needs in that manner. But I, what I want to point out is this. We have to be very careful about absolutizing specific instructions given to certain people at a certain time for a certain reason. 
For this reason in particular, Jesus says in Luke 22, verses 35 through 38, listen to this very, very clear instruction from Jesus. He said to them, speaking to the disciples, when I sent you without, without money belt, bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. So what, what's being encouraged there? God's going to take care of your needs, right? That, that's one of the points that was being communicated to them through that activity. And then he goes, he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword, sell your coat and buy one. <laughs> so you tell them, bring a sword, get some money, bring a bag. So recognize here that this isn't a contradiction. Jesus is saying, now it's a different time, and it's, it's acceptable for you to make provisions in light of what's going on. It reminds me of Paul's instruction regarding singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, in light of the present distress, I think it's better that this be the situation. And so his advocation for singleness, I would just say, is somewhat at least tied to this expression in light of the present distress. So I would just say this. Beware of absolutizing commands of Scripture in ways beyond what they're supposed to be made absolute. There are always particular truths that can be gained. And certainly we do learn something about the provision of the Lord here. But recognize that every call is different. And the demands of a short-term pioneer missionary work are different from the demands of a full campaign where ongoing support is needed for long-term faithfulness. Now, I would just say this. Be careful that your trust in the Lord doesn't somehow along the way become presumption. There's a very careful line there. But we, that we trust the Lord to care of our needs, but that we also be wise in how we engage in ministry. Otherwise, I think of other passages where Jesus says things like, you know, the man who starts to build a tower but hasn't first counted the cost and he gets halfway through with it, and he's like, well, I can't finish it. You become the laughing stock of the community, right? <laughs> Why did this guy start this thing? He had, no, he had no ability to finish it. Why did he even start it? Again, I say that the Lord has given us minds to be wise and discerning. So there's a careful balance here to be achieved. Fourth, be confident. And I can just say this. Remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge. Our ministry ought to be completed in complete confidence because we know that our Lord is in charge right it's called his harvest his laborers that he's going to thrust them out he's going to send them out this whole earnestness that shows itself in prayer is awakened because we recognize that he's the lord of the harvest it's his harvest and he's the one who's thrusting out workers into his harvest our this this confidence we ought to be filled with great confidence as we recognize that we're servants of the creator sustainer ruler and provider and savior of the world. Also, we can be confident because we can trust the Lord's provision. So we can remember that he's in charge and we can trust in the Lord's provision. Jesus gives instructions for them as they come into these houses that they're supposed to be gracious receivers and gracious givers. There's a wonderful interchange that happens here. They embarked without money, provisions, and supplies. So they were going to be dependent upon the Lord's provision and that provision was going to be bestowed upon them by those whom they ministered to. They were instructed to graciously receive whatever was put before them, eating whatever was set before them. This may have been some indication. Some believe that this is even an early uh, indication that Jesus is saying, even if you go into an area where you're like, you're kind of questioning whether or not the food is clean or not, just eat it. <laughs> it's been put before you. Just enjoy whatever has been provided I'm sort of argued that way. But regardless, the point is just graciously receive whatever they've, they've given to you and understand that, that you have a reward for your labor. 
Spiritual ministry can be rewarded with physical sustenance. This principle is picked up by Paul as scriptural. This is a really important passage in uh, in one of in First Timothy five eighteen, where he quotes from Deuteronomy twenty five four, "Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing," and then he also quotes from here, from this passage in Luke ten, and he calls both of them. He equates them as scripture. Really, really important passage for understanding the New Testament understanding of New Testament authority and scripture. So he equates Old Testament verse with a verse from Luke and says that they're both scripture. And on that basis, he advocates that pastors can be paid for the work, the labor that they do. But there really is a tremendous joy that happens here as we give and receive in ministry, right? There's giving of spiritual things, there's giving of physical things, and there's these wonderful exchanges. We really are united in ministry together. We truly are partners in the gospel. We really are. It's a wonderful thing. Also, I think you could mention this, that trusting the Lord's provision also means that we'll cultivate contentment. He tells them, remain in his house, don't go from house to house. He ask why perhaps that's the case may be meant to prevent someone from continually looking for upgrades to comfort. Oh, they've got a little bit nicer house over there. I think I'll spend some of my days over there instead of over here. He's like, we don't want that to be your concerns. That's not to be an issue. Just stay where you are. It will prevent any appearances of covetousness or love of money or luxury. And again, it would probably prevent delays. Once you've been at one place and it's time for you to go, just go to another place altogether. The fifth and final imperative undergirding genuine growth of Christian ministry, really, really important, is to be faithful. To be faithful. We had two passages read this morning. The second one we had read was from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Passage which declares the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And we've been made ambassadors for Christ. You understand that an ambassador is only so good as he proclaims the message he's actually been given. An ambassador has no right to come up with his own message and deliver it. His job is to proclaim the message given to him. He represents the one whom he's been sent by, and he's to proclaim faithfully and accurately the message that he has been given. We're only acting as ambassadors, therefore, if we proclaim Christ's message. We're only as good as we actually proclaim what we've been told to proclaim. Notice that the message that the 72 were given, this message that they were given, did not change no matter what response they received. <laughs> and they came into the house and they warmly received them. They're supposed to enjoy you know, hospitality, all the rest. And they were supposed to tell them, the kingdom of God has come near. This was supposed to tell them. Okay, now if they're rejected and nobody in the town wants to have them, they're supposed to go out in the street, shake the dust from their feet, say, I'm shaking the dust from my feet, and then what are they supposed to say? Nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. Whether you receive it or you don't, the kingdom of God has come near. I love this. It reminds us the wonderful thing about truth, doesn't it? That the truth is true, no matter whether you believe it or not. It remains constant, it is unchanging. And while scientific models are replaced and economic systems are adjusted and diplomatic policies are revamped and military actions are modified, God's truth remains the same. The gospel remains throughout all the ebb and flow of human experience. The genuine gospel is unadjusted. No matter whether you want to receive it or not, 
Isn't this interesting? This really is at the heart of this. The person who rejoices that the kingdom of God has come near because Christ has come near, right? The, the one who rejoices in that looks forward to that reality. But the one who rejects that, the same message, the kingdom of God has come near, is a frightful thing. For a holy God stands over you, a rebel, a sinner, who's worthy of judgment. God's truth remains the same. We must bear witness to the unchanging gospel. If we're to be an ambassador of Christ, this is what we've been given to do. I love the way that, one more quote from J.C. Ryle, he said this, simple, plain statements, boldly and solemnly made, and made in such a manner that they are evidently felt and believed by him who makes them, seem to have the most effect on hearts and consciences. We want more simple, plain, solemn, earnest, affectionate statements of simple gospel truths. He goes on to say, he says, the most eloquent sermon doesn't have, if it doesn't have this, it's not worth much. Simple, solemn, plain, earnest, affectionate statements of simple gospel truths. Be an ambassador. Also, be a watchman. We had read this morning as well the first reading there from Ezekiel. Understand Ezekiel 3.17, Ezekiel was, was called out by, by the Lord. He said, Son of man, I've appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Okay, an ambassador makes consistent proclamation of the unchanging gospel. And I want to pick up on this imagery of a watchman. A watchman is one who makes bold and loving application of that gospel to a person's situation. They're to give and proclaim the warning. Ezekiel is told in chapter 2, verse 7, You shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or listen not, for they are rebellious. Regardless of one's response, God's message must be faithfully and consistently proclaimed. But this message involves different consequences based upon different responses. We announce peace to the one who welcomes Jesus. If you welcome Jesus, if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then peace has come to you. You've been granted, in the most ultimate sense, shalom. You've been granted peace. You've been granted well-being. And those cities that were receptive to Christ's message would partake in healing ministry from those whom Jesus had sent to them, as well as this ongoing proclamation ministry. They would get a taste of what's to come. You guys recognize that's what it is? Christianity is giving us a taste of what's to come. For us who are in Christ, we're getting just a taste of what is to come one day. Meanwhile, that same message would mean pronouncing a penalty to those who reject Jesus. So it announces peace to those who receive Jesus, who welcome Jesus, and is the pronouncement of a penalty to those who reject Jesus. Those houses that reject Christ's ambassadors, the peace that was pronounced would return to those who had proclaimed it. Those cities that rejected Christ's message would be warned that the kingdom is coming nevertheless, and they would be granted a visual and verbal statement of the judgment that is to come by the shaking off of dust from their feet. They would not presently enjoy the inbreaking of God's kingdom. There wouldn't be works of healing that would happen in those cities. There wouldn't be ongoing proclamation of the gospel to those cities. As a matter of fact, it would guarantee a worse sort of judgment would fall upon them. 
Jesus indicates here in this text, and we looked at this in another context before, so I'm not going to spend lots of time on it this morning, but he indicates here that a much more severe judgment would be meted out upon those people who had been afforded greater revelation. He says, those Gentile cities of Sidon and Tyre, it's going to be better for them in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum, um, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, because those three cities, Jesus had done so much ministry while he was in Galilee around. He says there's going to be a greater judgment that falls upon them because of the greater revelation that had been granted them, and yet they rejected it. Jesus says if that revelation had been given to those cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. By the way, what's interesting, too, about the cities that Jesus mentions, um, Bethsaida is mentioned like once or twice. I think it's once as is a geographical uh, position near to something that Jesus was doing. But Chorazin is only mentioned here. We don't have any record of Jesus other than this one statement of Jesus doing ministry in Chorazin. So it's like, well, where does this come from? And I think it's just a manifestation of the truth that John said in John 21:25. And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were to be written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You see, Jesus' ministry here to this, of the 72 points forward to what Jesus' goal is with the whole world and, it, and the, the universal mission that's been given to his church. It's told that the China Gospel Fellowship in 1994 began collecting donations for a special ministry expansion project. People gave sacrificially to the commission. They were poor people and they were giving all that they could towards this. And the whole idea was this, that they would send out 70 young evangelists who would go out two by two and preach the gospel in the far provinces of China. Each pair of missionaries was given just enough supplies for a one-way trip. And they were told to trust God for their needs. Six months later, all the missionaries returned home safely. They had established new churches in 22 of China's 30 provinces, a six-month period. Now, whether or not we ever mimic that exact literal reconstructing of the sending of the 70, whether we have 70 here today or more, whether we go out literally from this place today, two by twos, and go to places without bringing anything but enough money for a one-way trip, Whether we ever do that literally, my question before us is this. Will we take seriously ministry multiplication? Will we live in accordance with the earnestness that Christ calls us to? Will we recognize that all of us as believers are participants in the expansion of Christian ministry? And can I just encourage you that right now, by the providence of God, I'm just working through the scriptures here, right? Gospel harmony. But here this afternoon, we have an opportunity, don't we? To go over to North Shore Park for a picnic lunch, for some time of fellowship. We're going to bring some tracks along with us. And we can quite literally go two by two around to people that are around there and share the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that the harvest is white? Do you believe that there are people that need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ in our community? I sure do. Let's be earnest. Let's be ready. Let's be wise. Let's be confident. Let's be faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvelous instruction you grant us in your word. We can learn from the example of Jesus and the way in which he approached the multiplication of ministry, the expansion of ministry. I pray that we would take these principles to heart, 
that we would apply them in our present context. We thank you, Lord, for the wondrous gift of salvation that you have made available, that you have secured through Jesus Christ. Please make us people who take seriously the condition of men's souls, that are earnest for their salvation. Help us be wise. Help us to be confident. Help us, Lord, to to look to you in all things as our provider and as our sovereign Lord. May we be earnest in prayer, Lord. May you grant us this perspective. And Lord, if there are any in this place right now who have heard the news of your glorious gospel this morning, I pray that you would awaken in them a desire for Christ, that you would convict them of their sin, that you'd grant them new life, that you'd regenerate their hearts, that you'd cause them to be born again to a living hope this morning. And please, Lord, it would seem very unfitting if we didn't pray specifically in reference to this sermon for the outreach that we're about to engage in this afternoon. For those of us who are able to come over to the park this afternoon and that we would, Lord, be earnest in prayer both now and into those discussions that You would be pleased to save some. Perhaps some are just there walking their dog or going out for a picnic once themselves and had no idea that they'd be confronted with the glorious news of the Gospel this day. But You knew. I pray that You would plant seeds. We know, Lord, that You've given us the privilege of planting and watering, but You're the one that causes the growth. And so we ask that You would save people for Your glory this day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.